He responds with, I'm not doing a good job here. I'm doing a great job here. And I'm fighting uphill the whole time because of this cultural bias that this place has against my sexuality. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. Thanks for tuning back in. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen, and we are one week out from an exciting time in season seven. Our themed month is coming up. It is going to be in November for this season. So if you listen along as these come out, it is coming out next week for you and us. I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so get excited for that. We're gonna do uh, the longtime listeners of the show know our kind of pattern. Every year, we do a themed month where we kind of center around a theme. It's often a, uh, there's often an attempt to be alliterative in the title of the month. <laughs> and, often, uh, <laughs> I think every time so far, I think we're yeah. seven for seven. Even even when Some we have to stretch, stretch pretty yeah. far. <laughs> <laughs> and this season is a little less of a stretch, but it is no exception to the alliterative alliterative rule we are doing murder month as our themed month this this season that is right murder month it, i guess it there's some sort of uh, thematic uh, uh satisfaction in that it comes out right after halloween in true the month yep. following we will be discussing four murder plays yes and you might uh, hear four four you say um there are in fact five weeks in october don't worry november Whatever month I'm talking about uh, <laughs> in November, um, but we're so we're gonna do it just a little bit differently this time. We thought uh, four weeks talking about murder was you know a bit of a long stretch, so we're gonna uh, throw something else in the mi- middle, a little like Dionysian Bachian comedy or something like that to kind of distract us from the yeah, murder. Yeah, look, Jackson and I are both in graduate school. We don't need an additional burden <laughs> of darkness and stress in our November. So though. We we will be discussing murder. A light-hearted comedy will intervene in the middle of the murder yes. to give you a break, but ju- to give mostly Jackson. Really, just to give us. A break. You get to listen and go on. We got to spend the whole week, week after week, preparing to discuss murder for a month. <laughs> Yep, yep. So we'll, we'll break it up a little bit for, for all of you and, and for us. So get excited. Murder Month is coming up. Not too much longer until you uh, finally get to experience it. We're excited to get to share it with you. But that is still one week away. We still have a play to discuss this week, which is not about murder. This is a play that I have been really looking forward to discussing. It has hit the national scene for several years now in a really big way. People are talking about it. It is part of the cultural conversation, and we have been so looking forward to having it on the podcast. Today we are discussing Choir Boy by Terrell McCraney. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to get to talk about it, too. Uh, it was a, a new read for me. First time I've read through the play. I haven't ever seen it. haven't been lucky enough to go see it. So, yeah, I'm excited to get to talk about it and kind of delve into some of its big themes around, like, community and and and, and the kind of dissonance or resonance with community. Yeah, I'm excited to get to jump into it. And it's got so much music in it. And I, yeah. as a playwright and director, am so stinking fond of music as part of the theatrical experience. And that is just a so 
much the case for this play. Of course, it's called Choir Boy, and there are these incredible spirituals throughout that will kind of guide it and give it some shape and also some incredible theatrical experience. So that, that I think, is a really fun part of it. Going to be a good conversation, I believe. Before we get there, we just want to say thank you to all of our patrons over on patreon.com slash podcast. This podcast is supported. This podcast is alive. This podcast can go week after week because we receive the support we receive over on Patreon. Jackson and I love to do the show. It is a great privilege. We get to read great scripts. We get to have great conversations with each other and then with you on social media and via email after the show. We love this podcast, but it's not free for us to do beyond the fact that there are fees associated with running a podcast, as any of you out there who've tried to do it before will know. We also have to somehow get access to scripts and libraries around us are not terribly wonderful at having lots of scripts in them. So that means we often have to buy the scripts, but we also put a significant time investment into the podcast as well. All that to say, we couldn't do it if we didn't receive some financial support, and the way people are supporting us is through Patreon. If you're not a supporter yet, I really want to encourage you to do it because you are listening to this podcast, and hopefully you feel like you are getting at least $1 a month worth of value with your time spent with us. That's the lowest tier that you can join us in your financial support over on Patreon. For $1 a month, you can support the work we do here. That is very helpful. There are higher tiers up from there, which you can check out over there. But please, please, please think about it. If you don't feel like you're getting a dollar a month's worth of value, probably you should write us an email and tell us that you don't feel like that because we need to hear that too. (laughs) So consider that. Uh, Thank you to those of you who are supporting us. We appreciate it. It. You make what we do possible. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, thank you all ever so much. It means the world to have you all supporting NoScript in that way and kind of growing the community. So thank you. Head on over to patreon.com slash NoScript, the podcast. We'll see you over there. And now, back to the script. Here we go. Jumping in, I'm going to give you just a little bit of context about the script, starting with uh, Terrell McCraney, who is the playwright of this play. Um, So Terrell McCraney uh, studied at DePaul University, got his BFA in acting there, and eventually graduated from Yale School of Drama in the playwriting program. He uh, also now uh, is the chair of playwriting at the Yale School of Drama and is also a member of the Steppenwolf Theater Ensemble. So uh, that's kind of where he gets a lot of his his education and his sort of... uh, track from you also probably know him from his film moonlight um which uh won the oscar for best picture in 2016 also won the oscar for best adapted screenplay so even if you don't know him from his uh stage work you may might know him through uh that that fairly prominent movie and also he has many other films uh that kind of sundance film festival sorts of shows so very very uh prevalent name in both film and stage right now uh choir boy was a play that was originally produced in kind of the 2011-2012. It had its uh, uh, premiere at the Royal Court Theatre in London and then came over to the Manhattan Theatre Club in 2013, which I believe technically counted as its off-Broadway debut. Um, and uh, then it had a couple of other small performances, or not small performances, performances at the at the Alliance Theatre and the Geffen Playhouse, but then in 2018 it had its uh, official Broadway debut. And uh, pretty notably, Jeremy Pope, the very talented artist uh, and music artist who played the uh, role of Ferris, kind of the main character of of the production, has been a part of that the this show all along since it's a Royal Court production in 2012, all the way through its Broadway production in 2018. 
Right. And the role of Ferris is is like kind of the central role of the script. Choir Boy is a play about a prep school. It is a Christian prep school. And I wanna, I'm want to going to say this right at the beginning so we don't have to mention it for the next 50 minutes or whatever. The time of the play is, the settings notes say, a school year last year. Now, that is not that far off from saying the present. And we've discussed on this podcast some of the issues with saying the present. (laughs) (laughs) And this actually, this is a nice highlight of this, because if it's a school year last year, then all these students would be in masks or not at school, right? So it's not last year for sure. So I don't know. I have have some issues with people who write the present (laughs) or this year or last year or next year in scripts. But I'm setting that aside because the play (laughs) is so stunningly spectacular outside of that one note at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Good setting aside of that theme. Uh, before you jump into to the to the synopsis itself, I need to make one correction to what I just said. Uh, Dominic Smith played the role when it was in the Royal Court Theater, and Jeremy Pope took over the role when it had its uh, off-Broadway debut at the New York City Center. So just a, a quick clarification there for the sake of, you know, truth. Yes, and so that role then again is Ferris. And Ferris is sort of our main character, our protagonist through the the world of the script. Um, some reviews have called this like a coming-of-age story in that it involves older teenagers who are headed towards their adulthood, juniors and seniors at the prep school, the Drew Preps, the Charles R. Drew Prep School for Boys. The characters who are students in this show are all part of the school choir as well. Um, So as I go into trying to describe all the things that happen in this play, I want to mention one other thing that is a common theme among reviewers, which is that this play is multi-level. There is a lot going on. In truth, it's more of a character study than like it is a narrative plot. Each of the boys that are students and the two adult characters in the show have fairly deep character journeys that they're on. And the ways in which those journeys conflict and intersect and overlap make up what happens in the script but it identifying like this sort of through this happens and so this happens and so this happens kind of plot is a little bit difficult i'll do my best so the, the play actually takes place over two school years, despite the setting note. Uh, the, the first school year is the very end of one school year. The school year in which Ferris is a junior is my understanding. Uh, I guess that is definitely true because the second school year is he's graduating as a senior. So at the end of his junior year, Ferris is selected from the choir to sing at commencement, uh, to sing the school song. Apparently it's a big deal, an honor. So the headmaster, Headmaster Marrow, does a little introduction, and then Ferris sings the school song as the graduates uh, process into the hall, basically. And as Ferris is singing this song, two other juniors, uh, who are Bobby and Junior, Junior the name of the character, he is also a junior in the scene, uh, they make some jokes about his sexuality. They say some slurs, and they interrupt Ferris's singing, basically. Um, that drives us into a basically an interrogation by the headmaster in the next scene, where the headmaster says, why did you stop singing in the middle of the song? And Ferris doesn't want to snitch, but says basically, 
some boys interrupted me. They interrupted me is all the clues we get on stage. I'm only going into that much detail because that's all the plot we get of the one school year. Then we skip the summer and come back to Ferris's senior year and Bobby's senior year and junior senior year and several of the other characters. And what we see now is sort of given the fact that what we saw before happened. In fact, you could almost call the end of junior year scenes that we get, those first two scenes, a sort of prologue to what really happens in the play, which is across the school year, we see it from the very first day of classes to the day of graduation, the boys at the Charles R. Drew Prep School and the members of the choir uh, live a life. Um, and, and it's very complicated. I'm going to go through each of the characters and just kind of give you a basic sweep of what goes on. Ferris, that main character, uh, is gay, and it's widely known that he's gay, even though at this school he has to at least feign being in the closet. And so the way the other characters treat his sexuality, treat him because of his sexuality, and the sexuality of some of the other boys is called into question through Ferris's plot. In a very loose sense, he's sort of trying to gain respect to position himself in a, in a, 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 a position in which he's not going to be bullied or ridiculed. He wants to sing the school song again at the end of the year. He's been put in charge of the choir and uses that power to sort of deal with some of the basically bullying that he's received at the hands of the other students. That's sort of a loose amalgamation of Ferris's plot. Bobby has recently lost his mother. It's worth noting that Bobby is also the headmaster's nephew, so there's a sort of nepotistic power that he gets across the course of the script. He doesn't like Ferris. It's a little bit unclear why to me, but um, he has some antagonism towards Ferris, and that antagonism uh, represents itself in him trying to basically quash Ferris's hopes and dreams. The two of them uh, battle against each other through most of the course of the script. David is another boy who wants to go on to seminary. He's had some sort of past that we kind of loosely learn about in very uh, unclear discussions that maybe is in conflict with his wanting to go on to seminary. Um, and so that sort of his plot line is a member of the choir. Um, we have AJ, who is Ferris's roommate, also a member of the choir. He is interested in kind of protecting Ferris in some ways, um, treating him kindly in a way that other people don't. We get Headmaster Marrow again. He is the headmaster of the school. He is trying to hold on to the strong traditions and values of uh, the Drew Prep School and at the same time is dealing with how hard managing these group of people is. He brings in Mr. Pendleton, a former teacher at the school, apparently famous historian, to like teach a class on thinking partway through the show, sort of a... Yeah. Like a <laughs> sort of dead poet society, I guess. I think I read right, that in a yeah. review, sort of similar inspirational kinds of teaching. Um, and P Mr. Pen Pendleton also goes on to take over the choir for some reason later in the play, <laughs> basically just because the choir's exploding in endorphins and hormones and somebody needs to go in and control things. And so the headmaster puts Mr. Pendleton in charge. 
in the climactic end of the play, as all of those things swoom and swing through the course of the script, all of these lives intersect and there's these conflicts. Again, the plot is fairly loose. Some scenes don't have much to do with that plot at all. They're just portraits of these characters and what their life is like in this final year at Drew Prep School. But the little bits of those plots, mostly around Ferris's conflict with Bobby and how the other characters relate with Ferris, as that goes on, finally towards the end of the script, Ferris is attacked in the showers. Right. Right, and that's kind of a, a little bit of a confusing scene. We're not really sure who exactly attacks him. He speaks to someone who's in the showers for uh, a good chunk of the scene, Ferris does, and then the, the actual strike happens offstage somewhere. So it's a little up in the air, at least in the moment, who exactly attacks Ferris. Right, yeah, it's a, it's a hidden moment. It's an offstage moment. He's talking to someone who's in the shower. Then he goes into the shower and gets hit. Junior is there at the beginning of the scene, and then at the end of the scene comes back in and so is at least it appears a witness to who might have done the attacking but what goes on to happen is that the headmaster interrogates most of the boys in the play one right after the other about who attacked Ferris. Ferris himself refuses to snitch in a little homage to the beginning of the play where he also refused to snitch Um, and Junior who's there sort of defending Bobby also refuses to snitch on I think we would assume the person who he actually knows did the attacking given that he was in the showers when it happened. So uh, Headmaster interrogates all of these young men and ultimately David, who is again this student who hoping to go on to seminary, has some sort of past that's vaguely sort of shamefully referenced by some of the other boys we don't really know, admits that it was he who attacked Ferris and that he either is or was in love with Ferris and that his scene sort of ends with an homage to blood on his hands. Um, he's kicked out of school by the Headmaster, uh, who describes what happened to Mr. Pendleton because of the attack, because he wouldn't claim it as self-defense and is sent home. The end of the play is the graduation ceremony for these young men. They are uh, proceeding, and it is Bobby who is chosen to sing the school song. Um, Ferris is not chosen because, as Mr. Pendleton says, in what I believe is a reference to other gay men who've been attacked in the past, that boys with black eyes don't get to sing the school song. And again, Bobby sings it in the way that Ferris was interrupted at the beginning of the play. Bobby also turns to look at Ferris then at the end of the script. Now, what I haven't said through all of this, and you already know if you know Choir Boy, and if you don't, this is an interesting layer, is that these are all young black men. Uh, The prep school is a prep school for young black men. And so there is also this this layer of culture and this layer of the stereotypes of uh, the cultural perception towards young black men, which is in this script, in a similar way that it's in a script like Pipeline by Dominique Morisseau. And a, and a centering of those storylines, both, uh, and, and in Ferris, a real centering of, of kind of two of those communities. Uh, as, a, as a young black queer man, his story um, takes center stage and you get to interact with that story as, as with him as the main character throughout. And and yeah, this, this play, as you have uh, described it, is so many different... Um, so many different really deep stories for each of these characters all interweaving in this 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 choir program at this prep school and 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 it's just really interesting to have them all 
so at, at some points, I agree that what we've said so far, that Ferris is kind of the, the one who we follow for most of the story. And yet there's big revelations for each of these characters. David is up uh, against the wall, basically trying to be the first person in his family to graduate from this prep school. And so he he's carrying a lot of pressure around that. Bobby has lost his mom recently. Uh, Mr. Pendleton has like recently retired and was a civil rights activist back in the day. So, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's a play full of, of interesting, deep backstories that are all being brought to a head in one, one year. Yeah. One reviewer said it basically like this, that, uh, Terrell McCraney has such a huge empathetic heart for all of the characters that all of the characters get brushed with this swash of empathy and warmth and um, uh, connection. Even the antagonists, even the ones that behave cruelly, even the sort of side characters like Mr. Pendleton, who aren't quite as fully imagined as all of the students are. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's, let's jump into like that. I mean, there's, there is a central conflict right between Bobby and Ferris that's set up right at the beginning and you kind of pay it off at the end with the, 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 the denouement or the, the climax of the play being whether it's Ferris or Bobby who sings at the end. Um, and these two, uh, are, are just, uh, pretty much at each other's throats throughout. There's, there's some sense that, uh, there's some competition in the choir. They're both tenors, I believe. So they, they both have the same sort of role to play. And, and, and so right, you know, right off the bat, you wonder, you know, maybe with Ferris being chosen unanimously as the lead, as he says, um, for, for the choir, if there's some, some, uh, disgruntledness from Bobby about that, but also the, the kind of bullying about his, his gender identity as well, uh, adds, adds more heat and more pressure to that, that conflict between them. Right. In in the school year that is their senior year, which is the school year that is the vast majority of the play, that school year starts with Bobby and Junior believing that Ferris snitched on them because they basically get given trash duty or cleanup duty or something similar uh, when the headmaster says, I know what you did at the graduation ceremony last year. And so they say, oh, Ferris must have snitched on us. So they immediately begin that school year with a tangible reason to distrust, to dislike Ferris. But what we know as the audience and what's so lovely, what Terrell McCraney has done so well is tell us that that is not the core reason why they dislike or did because they begin the play by making these bullying terrible remarks about his sexual identity yeah yeah and then you see ferris then too in this light of someone who like he over and over uh, what's the name of the school i don't have it in front of me at the, the moment drew the, prep school for boys the charles r drew prep school for boys he he over and over wants to be he says that he wants to be a drew man or or ascribe to the ideals the pretty lofty ideals of this prep school and so you see him uh loving this community and and loving it so much that he's willing to navigate it in ways that compromise him or that that have to uh, put him in really difficult positions like protecting people who you know uh, called him uh, both both racial and and uh, gender slurs in his in, in, in while he was singing and caused him to kind of uh, derail a little bit in that so you see him holding this tension that that he won't turn them over he won't snitch on them even as even as they are actively his antagonists. So you, you, you get that this other side of Ferris well as well, that he has this deep love for the community, even as it is 
hurting him or forcing him to uh, keep some of himself away from the public eye in that community. And I'm not even sure I think he has that deep a love for the school. I mean, it's a it's an interesting relationship. It, it it's it's not that it's unclear by the script, but that it is deliberately interpretable. Uh, for example, AJ and Ferris have a conversation in the middle of the play about what graduate the oncoming graduation is going to mean from them. And uh, Ferris basically says, you know, I'm going to be a little sad to leave, but not really that sad. <laughs> and I've also seen uh, a filmed version of a scene that is not in our play from 2019. We know that the script has undergone several revisions uh, where things are added and cut and moved around. So there's at least one additional scene that's not in our 2015 copies of the script where Ferris elaborates even more on the ways in which Drew provided him some opportunity to move away from some of the judgments he faced in his previous life or his life outside of Drew, but also where people constantly view him through this lens of his... um, his need to stay closeted in an official capacity, but his basically openness in this kind of unofficial way. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, so maybe it's not, I wonder if it maybe isn't necessarily a, a particular love for everything it stands for, but maybe a longing for that space to appreciate all parts of him. Um, because because he wouldn't the, the the moving into a leadership position um, as lead of the choir speaks to that longing I think because it'd be fairly easy for him to just kind of skate by here in this school and just not rock the boat too much um, and 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 uh, graduate and move on to another place right um, but it's 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 he he leans into that tension leans into a leadership role that puts him in the spotlight that continues to put him in conflict with Bob and with the system around him. So maybe maybe that's a different way to put it. This this kind of longing for for his full presence to be valued there. Maybe, but I also think it's worth noting that the two scenes where he really claims that Drew identity as something that is delib- that is making choices for him in terms of not snitching are also connected to the, they're the same two scenes in which this conversation about fear versus respect is more is is developed and elaborated. So one of the things that is cool about the play is this symbiotic or symmetrical structure, right? There is the very beginning of the play, which is the school song uh, graduation scene. The very end of the play is the school graduation scene. Just after the school graduation scene is the beginning is this interrogation of Farrell or Ferris by the headmaster. Um, just before the school graduation song at the end is the uh, is this interrogation of all of the boys by the headmaster so what's the word jackson for those words that can be spelled the same forward and backward palindrome palindrome so there's sort of a palindromic structure to what's going on in the script and in the interrogation scenes on either side is this discussion ferris has with the headmaster about whether you'd like to be feared or respected more and i wonder if i were directing this play which i would not be or if i were playing ferris which i would not be 
I would maybe <laughs> wonder around is the claiming of the Drew identity in terms of not snitching, in terms of holding these Drew men ideals, is that part of a power struggle towards his desire for fear or respect more than it is like a deep-rooted love for the school and its ideals? Mm, yeah, there is that second scene where he's talking with the headmaster and he finally gets the headmaster to answer the question that he's been asking whether he whether the headmaster would rather be feared or respected. Um, and while the headmaster comes down on respected, you have the line of, of Ferris right after that, I can't ever make them fear me. Um, so so that that I think is telling of of somewhat of his wonderings around how power works um, and and may, maybe kind of longing for that respect, even though it hasn't been given um, because he can't make them fear him. Um, the fear doesn't work as a tactic um, because you kind of see him try fear as a tactic, fear of not being a part of the the choir. Um, he tries that tactic on Bobby and ca kind of casts him out of there. And then the headmaster sends Bobby back in and also um, the uh, Mr. Mr. Pendleton into the room to try to like make them all work together. So the fear tactic didn't work and he's just gotten punched and he's, he's feeling a lack of respect as well. Well, and I wonder if that desire for respect is part of what manifests in the uh, the the refusal to snitch on anybody, right? Will, will these other boys who so beleaguer me, will they respect me if I hold the, the line, right? If I refuse to snitch. And then right away, right? So he does that and the headmaster scene where he refuses refuses to snitch on Bobby and Junior when they make fun of him or they, they're very cruel towards him in, as he sings, right? This is the beginning of the play. Then the headmaster interrogation affair, so he doesn't snitch. Then we skip ahead to the very beginning of the school year, and Bobby and Junior immediately believe he has snitched. So he's lost that ability to hold that respect. And what comes immediately next? He kicks them out of the choir. If you're looking for this fear, respect, back and forth in the script, you might say, well, my desire to be respected by not not snitching ultimately failed, so I went with fear instead. Mm -hmm. You also see that that his tactics around trying to be respected by Marrow and 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 re and rewarded by Marrow for for respect. I think Marrow more or less does respect him. He says that he's talented, and yet um, pretty consistently. Uh, uh, Ferris has to deploy tactics to continue <laughs> uh, being able to lead the choir. There's a scene where uh, the, uh, the uh, headmaster Marrow tries to take that away from him, and he basically threatens to go to the board and start and start telling on him. <laughs> um, so, so you, I wonder if that's that's part of the equation too. In the multitude of 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 stories that are happening, he's also seeking for the respect of the headmaster and the school to to show that he is supporting. Uh, um, su supporting what what the headmaster wants to be stood for. Yeah, I mean, if you're playing Ferris, you might look for air instances in which Ferris is pushing versus pulling, right? This is one of the ways we talk in very general terms about acting and objectives. When are you pushing? When are you pulling? When are you making versus when are you getting? That's from the old William Ball chapter on objectives, right? So what is Ferris doing and when, right? If, if he's unable to use the pulling tactic, to gain that respect by drawing people to him, then the other way he's going to have to get what he wants is by pushing. And you see that manifest itself, right? So when... Um 
when Headmaster says you're so talented in his investig his interrogation scene of Ferris at the beginning of the script, he says this is the quote, right? You heard him. He's the best, regardless of the blank. So there's an admission of his talent, but also an admission that his sexuality undermines the way people see his talent and his ability to be respected. Hmm, yeah, yeah. So this this community has these values that he that prevent him from from being accepted in it. So you have the scene later on when he's talking to his roommate, AJ, and he's he's saying, You're 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 doing you're doing a really good job here, AJ says. And he responds with, I'm not doing a good job here. I'm doing a great job here, and I'm fighting uphill the whole time because of this cultural bias that this place has against my sexuality. It only seemed good because everybody always want me to do bad is the line, right? Yeah. Because everybody uh, has this inherent uh, neg negativity, right? Bias against him because of his sexuality. He is, I like how you put it, right? He's fighting uphill. And that makes garnering that respect something that becomes fairly improbable. So you see him try to garner that fear, but that admission that you gave us at the end of the play, right? I can't ever make them fear me. Yeah, and I like your push-pull uh, uh, um, insight as well because you see that in each of the characters. He has a lot of, like, like I think AJ is maybe the one exception of someone who kind of gets by his guard a little bit and becomes a truly trusted friend. Um, and, and that's a bit of a journey even in the context of the play itself. Um, you, you, they kind of reach that point by the, by the end of the play. But, but you see him across all the characters kind of pushing and, and pulling and trying to figure out how to navigate this pretty fraught system that he's in uh, and, and try to uh, find his own voice in that system. And, and that, that bias, especially in the way that it, it appears in the headmaster, is pointed out by Pendleton in their final scene of the play. They're discussing the fact that they kicked David out for attacking Ferris, but also there's this problem of him admitting that he had been or is in love with Ferris. And Mr. Pendleton says, you know, you had all of these strategies in place to deal with what happened when somebody inevitably attacked Ferris for his sexuality, but you didn't ever think anybody could love him. Yeah, yeah, that's a powerful, powerful scene, and that, and and also kind of digging into a little bit of wandering around David stuff um, that you that we don't really know a whole lot about. We get a lot of um, uh, kind of uh, f very high context remarks, especially from Bobby and Junior around something that happened with David, um, and and you get the 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 kind of knowledge that he was pretty uh, aggressive against. Uh, Ferris in previous years and yet apologized for it. There's also a, after the, the kind of uh, punch to Ferris in the shower scene, you have a, a scene where uh, to, to sum it up quickly, Mr. Pendleton has asked them all to go and pick a favorite song and bring it back and perform it and tell a story about Does it. Does that sound like Dead Poet Society or what? <laughs> That uh, that yeah. reviewer hit it spot on, like <laughs> inspirational sort of pseudo educational practices. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, just like you go out and and I'm sure you'll find something that, that works. Um, but um, but yeah, he comes back and even though it's not in a class session, he goes to Mr. David goes to Mr. Pendleton and and right after the scene, um, where where Ferris has been punched out in the showers, he sings a love ballad 
um, an, a 70s love ballad, something like Love Ballad by LTD um, is the is the stage direction for that. So you have a lot of, of clues that David has been struggling with his feelings for Ferris um, as he is as he is navigating school as well. So so, yeah, you have all this kind of. Uh, all these characters kind of rotating around and struggling with where they fit in this system and even with the plans uh, plans going forward. And to go back to David just briefly, I actually think there are some more cute clues in the play about what may have happened between them. One of them is this scene in which uh, Ferris and AJ, again, AJ's Ferris's roommate, AJ is uh, more kind towards Ferris, really sees the, the good in him that everybody else doesn't see because of his sexuality or however you you want to sort of describe that but there's this scene in which ferris is making some jokes teasing aj about the size of his package all right and david comes in at the end of that scene and says i overheard you that's inappropriate for you to be talking about now you could say well david is like this sort of morally uprighteous wants to go on to seminary kind of character or you could say what in the world was he doing overhearing them first of all and second of all what if he and ferris had a previous relationship is this a jealousy that's come into him as he hears Ferris, even in a joking way, describe another guy's package, right? Then there is this ongoing question of who Ferris's first roommate was. We know that AJ was assigned to Ferris later in his time there because whoever Ferris's first roommate was decided they didn't want to room with him anymore. Then there is a phone call with Ferris and his mother where it seems like the mother is not staged. You only hear Ferris's side of the conversation. But it seems like the mother mistakes believes for a few moments or forgets that David is not Ferris's roommate. So you start to wonder yeah. around that and you say, well, was David the first roommate? Did they have a romantic relationship beyond that then eventually caused David to want to leave uh, uh, David or uh, Ferris's room and go to room someone else? And is uh, and and um, Bobby and AJ talk about the way David behaves now as opposed to then as like a conversion. Right. So that, that's some loaded language as well. Yeah, which which ties into uh, the the sort of the, the the distrust of his conversion and his kind of consistent uh, even even when he's talking with the headmaster as he's confessing to having hit Ferris, he's quoting scripture, and you just kind of you you wonder you wonder how that's all playing together with him. You could almost have a whole play about David if you wanted to. It's not the focus, or at least the main focus of the play. But David's going through a lot as he's trying to navigate this this high context, high culture system around him. And it seems like he's saying, although I admit it's a little bit unclear to me because of the vernacular, but it seems like he's saying that Ferris and he were alone in the showers together and that there was something perhaps sexual romantic that was going to happen between them uh, until David heard somebody come into the showers who was Junior, of course, as we described in the synopsis. Junior comes in and that prompts David to panic and attack Ferris is it seems like how he describes what happens. Which again ties into he he has this line earlier when he's talking to Bobby. Bobby is trying to to say that he is kind of making himself guilty by association with Ferris during the point when Bobby guilty. You can't see my air quotes in Bobby's world. Guilty. Um, 
and uh, he's he's like t- trying to get him to to like leave the choir or something or take Bobby's side in it. And and David says, I can't be expelled from here. I, it can't this this cannot happen that I am expelled from here. So you 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 have that kind of fear under under riding him as well of th- that kind of wondering of what happens if they find out that this is happening in the shower. And so that that quick reaction to punch Ferris and and whether Junior lies for him or not you have that quick choice by david um out out of i think that same fear that fear that he can't he can't not graduate from this prep school and you have ferris and david these two characters who there there may be this core difference there's an interview with terrell mccraney where he talks about how when he was writing ferris he wanted to write a character whose identity had to be secret, but at the same time couldn't be secret. Who he was just spills out of him. It's impossible to hide. And so that's this Ferris character. But David is a character who maybe more effectively could pass, right? And who uh, is is more effectively, let's say, hiding that part of himself. And so there is a panic when he sees the way that other people treat Ferris. If you were the actor playing David or the director, you might say, why why is da- you know is David afraid of being put in the position that other people put Ferris in? Mm, yeah, <laughs> so so th- that kind of like deep psychological, lots of great stuff to sink your teeth into is just all over this play. We're we're getting down to the end of the podcast, and we got to make time to talk about the music though. The too. music, <laughs> oh my goodness! So they're they're a choir, right? And they sing these incredible hymns and spirituals. I've listened to many of them online, and it is written into the script as well that basically the character Ferris has gone in and sort of updated them with a different kind of melodic tune. Um, Sometimes they're a little bit more hip-hop oriented. Um, Just sort of modernized versions of spirituals and hymns. They are all throughout. Almost all the characters sing. I don't think Pendleton sings at any time. But every other character does. Pendleton's the only white character in the show, so there's other ways in which he's set apart too. The, the hymns are used so well. I want to point out two moments where they really intersect with the plot really effectively. You already mentioned one, right? After the shower scene, there is this, um, the, the assignment to bring a song forward, and David brings forward this love ballad song after the scene in which he maybe was going to romantically rekindle his relationship with Ferris in the showers, gets caught and attacks him instead, right? So lovely overlap there between what David sings and how the plot may manifests itself. There's also a moment in the middle of the script in which uh, the boys sing, uh, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. You can probably hear me flipping through the script on my mic. <laughs> I'm finding that moment here. And it it that is so beautiful because Bobby is the lead singer at that point. Many of the kids get to sing their own parts or lead the songs at different times, but Bobby is the lead singer, and sometimes I feel like a motherless child. And Bobby, we learn, has recently lost his mother, and that is part of what has made his emotions run very close to the surface and why at very little prompting from Ferris he can go off and seem really cruel. And that is just, I, I watched a, one group, one production sing that song with Bobby in the lead part there. And it it is painful, heartbreaking overlap between the story and the songs. He is a motherless child. Yeah. Singing this spiritual, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. 
Yeah, no, that that's a beautiful scene. All the songs in them, like they're not, I, I was watching one interviewer and they, they put it quite well, uh, that none of these songs are just like scene change music or like change in locale music. They're all moving the plot forward. The other one that comes to mind is uh, Ring Them Bells is is the song that is being sung as each of these students are calling home and, and, and uh, kind of checking in. We learn things about David. We learn things about Ferris um, in those scenes as this, this, this number is going on and at least in the um uh the let's see the 2018 production the most recent broadway production they've also uh included some dance as well into these songs so it's a whole in addition to ferris kind of adding these these new tunings and new arrangements for these songs they're also this highly performative really evocative dance happening as well that that is indicative of of where the scene just came from uh, and, and all done acapella as well. No, no band underneath them. It's, it's this choir um, uh, doing singing both song and dancing that really motivates the, the plot forward. So it's not a musical in the yeah. sense that the characters uh, sing an internal monologue or they, you know, that the song is dialogue between the characters or that plot moves forward in action that occurs in the song. It's more like a play with music because I think that phrase, it's, which is a, a phrase from the theatrical lexicon, uh, indicates that the songs are more than scene change music too, which I think is appropriate, very correct. It, But, you know, the, the, the genres are gray. Yeah, it's a story. Like they're using <laughs> multimedia to tell a story well. Um, uh, so so yeah, the 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 music winds up, and actually the music is talked about. It's a play about a musical group as much as it is about like each of these boys' um, lives. Uh, they it's it's this it's this story of them and how music is affecting him. For Ferris, it's affecting him very profoundly. He has a he has the one of his like reports that he brings once uh, they're bringing reports to the choir because uh, Mr. Pendleton has, has showed up as the as the advisor for it or the the mentor for it um is is about spirituals and and their roots in 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 their communities so so you have this like deep engagement with music itself music is a part of this play um but i agree it's not the same as like um uh you can't express this any other way than by bursting into song that's how that's how you justify musicals often is the only way that uh you can you can express the deep emotion that you're feeling or the passion that you're feeling is by breaking into song that's not really how the song is or music is used in this play and the plot does influence the music as we've described and as you can see if you watch online of course for this show the the musical moments are the big advertisements so you can see tons of different recordings and advertisements and such that involve the music from the play and if, if you watch them the the characters intentions their feelings what they want from each other how they express those wants to each other does bleed into 
to the way that they perform this music in much the way that uh, the, the, like the concern of the school over and over is that all these boys' personal lives are going to influence their performance as the choir. They want the choir to be this sort of protected, beautiful representation of Drew, and it's becoming very hard to do that because the boys' deep emotional realities, their deep plot realities, who they are, come into conflict. That bleeds into the choir. And so you see that physicalized in the way that the characters conflicts bleed into the actual performances of the music and we've described several of the moments where that happens but there's also just this element of them being beautiful and i like your word evocative moments yeah yeah it is it is fascinating to to have this kind of uh almost institutional anxiety flavoring each of these these uh these these musical moments cuz you have a uh, headmaster marrow uh, well, first, yeah, Headmaster Marrow is constantly worried. He even brings up, like, how much fun it is to watch the the new performances that Ferris is is putting together, even as he acknowledges that his anxiety about how it will be received. Um, pretty notably, it's a small detail, but uh, and, I, and I think I'm remembering it correctly, but the school itself, this prep school, is only 50 years old, which in terms of, like, prep schools is not that old. So, so you have you have this kind of institutional anxiety that that Marrow is trying to combat even as he sees this 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 uh yeah, this highly evocative, very beautiful um uh, uh project that that the choir is working on that also ekes its way into the dance numbers as as you're watching them. And not only do the conflicts bleed into the music, but the reality of the music and the choir bleed into the conflicts too, right? Is Ferris going to be allowed to be the lead of the choir even after he kicks Bobby out? Is Ferris going to be allowed to sing the school song at graduation? The music is intricately connected to the plot, but I think why you would define it as not a musical is that the plot is not played out or advanced in the music. Yeah, I think I agree. There's there's certainly like action doesn't stop necessarily. There's the phone call one that is a little bit complicated in 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 that way. But but for the most part, I, I agree. There's 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 not uh there's not the an argument doesn't take place via song, specifically the words of the song. Perhaps in the physicality, there's an option to tell some story of conflict there. But but yeah, the song itself is not carrying the plot of the conflict or the or the yeah, just the conflict. Yeah, no, because I, there's, I, I, I yeah. like the way you're putting that, right? It's the, the text of the music is not dialogue between the characters or action between the characters. In the subtext, there is nonverbal dialogue and action. Yeah. But the text of the music is not that. Right, right. Yeah, which which makes songs like like sometimes I feel like a motherless child be be in that same vein. We are experiencing something deep about the characters as they sing it, but not necessarily uh, via the text of the song. Well, I think we're probably out of time. There's a lot more that is fascinating about this story. The way that uh, Terrell McCraney has repeated stories throughout the play, you'll see a story played out and then you'll see those characters tell that story again later on is a fascinating script writing technique. We didn't talk much about Junior. What is Ferris and Junior's yeah. <laughs> relationship? Why is he the one who comes back in? Why does he not snitch on Bobby about attacking Farrell or Ferris, but he does snitch on Bobby about having sex with his girlfriend? Yeah. I mean, th th there's a fascinating character we didn't touch much on. We've only got an hour, but plays like this deserve uh, uh, really awesome conversations around them.
Yeah, and we'd love to kind of kick that conversation to all of you out there. There's so many great themes in this play. Of course, the, the big theme of kind of centralizing the story of a black queer character and also the stories of all these boys as they're navigating a high culture system that has biases against them. So, so we'd love to keep talking with all of you out there. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at the username, at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep this conversation going, both uh, with us and with the whole NoScript community on all of those social media sites. Absolutely. If you like this podcast, we would sure appreciate it if you would recommend it to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes scripts, likes drama, likes literature, send them our way, see if they'll like No Script as well. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Podbean. We are also on Facebook, as Jackson said. You can like us on Facebook. You'll see an advertisement every Wednesday or Thursday-ish for what's coming up on the podcast. And then every Monday when the episodes are released, you'll be able to just click and play from there. And speaking of episodes being released, the next one that is coming out is Murder Month. Join us in November. Yes, yes. Cue the, you know, uh, flashing thunder and all that for Murder Month. Here we go. So we're excited to get to jump into that next week. Until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast. We'll see ya. <laughs>